Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be launching a new sermon series today based out of the book of Romans chapters 9 through 11. Now, if you've been at Wildwood the last year, you know that we have been in a series, uh, a number of, of sermon series that have walked us through the different sections of the book of Romans. Um, we began last fall and we've, we've carried on to completion, completing a, a, a series on chapter 8 just a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you've been around churches for a while, you may have wondered when we wrapped up our series on chapter 8 if we were going to continue by looking at Romans 9, 10, and 11. And you would feel that way because oftentimes when the book of Romans is taught, it is taught like a donut. You will hear a lot of conversation on the first eight chapters of Romans, and then you'll hear some conversation on the last from 12 to 16, but chapters 9, 10, and 11 are often skipped. Now, why is that? Why are these three chapters skipped? And, and it's even caused some theologians to look at Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, and they call it just a parenthesis inside the book, just Paul including some extra stuff, not necessarily pertinent to a central argument in the book. But the reality is, I, I think that God very intentionally gave us Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 exactly where we find them because it is central to the point that he's making about who God is and the righteousness that God has and how that gets connected to us and how certain we can be of our relationship with him through Christ. And so we're going to look at 9, 10, and 11 over the next seven Sundays or so as we are going to be in a series called Family Tree. Um, so that's where we're going to be over the next little bit. But before we open up and look at those verses, I want to begin with a hypothetical situation. I want you to imagine uh, that you are an orphan. And let's just say for the sake of, of averaging it out that you are a 15-year-old orphan living in an orphanage. Now, for some of you, thinking of being 15 is you have to advance in years a couple of years. For others of you, being 15 means you have to go back a couple of years. For others, you have to go back several decades. But imagine that you're 15 and you're an orphan living in an orphanage. And then let's imagine that someone comes into the orphanage, a, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, they walk in, and out of all of the children in the orphanage, they look at you and they say, we want you. We want to enter into a committed relationship with you. We want to enter into a relationship that will make you a part of our forever family, and nothing will separate us in this life. We are going to be connected forever. Now, imagine that you were that orphan, and you're 15 years old, and for 15 years of your life, you had spent that time alone in an orphanage, and finally, someone walks in and says, they want you, and they want you forever. Can you imagine what that would feel like? Now, let's just imagine your, your heart is, is leaping in your chest. You're excited for this new connection, and so you run over, and you give a hug to your your future mother, and you give a hug to your future father, and, and after you give them those hugs, you think, you know, I'm going to ask them, do they have any other children? Because after all, I might, you might get a bonus. You might not just get a mom and a dad. You might get a brother or a sister instead. And so you ask them, do you have any other kids? And they, they tell you this. They say, well, we used to have a four-year-old, but we're actually trading them in for you. 
We got tired of that four-year-old and, and, and we looked ahead at some parenting books and it looked like it was going to be really rough for a, at least a few more years. And so we've decided to skip four to 15 and trade the four-year-old in for you. Now imagine what that would feel like. You know, at one point, you're elated. Somebody wanted you to be a part of their forever family, but at the next moment, you find out that this family is exchanging their biological child for you, and it makes you wonder, how secure is my membership in this family? How long will it be before I do something that causes them to trade me in for someone else? Now, I I tell you that illustration today because I think it helps us make sense of Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, Paul makes the statement that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. God has come to us and has initiated a relationship with us and said, I want to be with you. I want you in my family. And not only that, but God makes a promise at the end of chapter 8 that he says, there is nothing, nothing that can separate you from my love. God has invited us into his forever family. And as people in this room, most of us do not come from a Jewish background. Most of us come from a non-Jewish background. Most of us come from what the Bible would call a Gentile background. And so we're not the people the Old Testament was originally given to. We're not the people of the covenant that God had with them in the Old Testament. And so we were people who were godless for a while. We were an orphaned people, and God comes to us and invites us into his forever family, and that ought to make us very excited. But here's the thing. It's helpful for us to ask the question, how secure is our relationship with God? And one of the ways that we can determine how secure our relationship with God is is by looking at how God deals with other branches on his family tree. In other words, how God deals with Israel ought to be an indication for us of how faithful he will be to us. And so what Paul is doing in in chapter 8 is he's raising the question, how, how faithful, how secure is our salvation? How faithful will God be to us? Because in the first century, the Jewish people had rejected their Messiah. They had rejected Christ. And it sure seemed like the church, the face of the church was shifting from Jew to Gentile. And that is a trend that has continued on even till today. And so for those of us Gentiles who have been adopted into God's family, is it possible that we might feel a little insecure thinking that if God jettisoned the Jews, will he one day jettison us as well? And so to answer that question, the Apostle Paul writes Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 to help fill out our understanding about the God that we can trust and some understanding about God's relationship and his promises with Israel. So we're going to, to look at that in this series called Family Tree over the next several weeks. Now, uh, I, I will say this. We're getting ready to head into this, this donut hole, the, the, the section of Romans that is often skipped over And the reason why this section of Romans is often skipped over is because there's some hard stuff in there. We're going to be talking about election and predestination, and we're going to begin that conversation in just a few minutes. And so with that, I want to just just point out at the outset that we're going to be talking about some hard things. But here's the thing. God has entrusted this message to us. 
because he thinks that we need to know it. And even though it's, it's bigger than our, our minds can fully handle, he wants us to know and embrace this truth. And this is something that we've seen throughout Scripture. Do you realize that God is bigger than you are? You realize that God is bigger than your brain is? Your ability to understand something about God is not complete. As a matter of fact, God is so great that even in his very essence, his very identity, our minds can't figure it out. Because what is the essence of God? He is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. One God, three persons, one God. We can't make sense of that, can we? But here's what ought to make sense about it. When we we have our head begin to hurt and we think about the Trinity, we realize that God is bigger than our minds. And when we come to the topic of salvation and we talk about the issue of election and predestination, a similar thing ought to happen to us. We talk about this, this work that God is doing in the world. There's parts of it that won't make sense to us. But when it doesn't make sense to us and our head begins to hurt, when we talk about election and predestination, here's what we ought to do. What we ought to do is we ought to take a deep breath and go, guess what? This reminds me that God is bigger than me. And so the God who is bigger than us and the salvation that is bigger than us is revealed to us in the book of Romans. And Paul begins to answer the question about election and predestination and the security of our salvation as it relates to Israel in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. So I'm going to read these verses for us and then we'll, we'll back up and we'll look at them a little more in depth. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, says this. Paul writes and says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named." This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now there's some challenging things. There's some things that make your head hurt a little bit in these verses. Hopefully God will give us some clarity today as we look at them together. But as he gives us that clarity, let's remember that God is bigger than we are. Okay? First thing we're going to see from these verses is this. Broken hearts for unbelieving friends. Broken hearts for unbelieving friends. Now, we see this in the first five verses of chapter 9. The Apostle Paul is, is writing here, and he reveals his, his anguish over the fact that a number of his countrymen, a number of the fellow Jews that were contemporaries of his, had rejected Christ. 
Jesus had come and they had said, he is not the Messiah for us. God had revealed and demonstrated that revelation in history and they had said no. And that reality of many of Paul's countrymen turning away from Christ caused him great anguish. He had a broken heart for his unbelieving friends. We see this in verse 9, or verse 1 of chapter 9. Paul writes, says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul was broken up over their unbelief. Why was he broken up over their unbelief? He was broken up over their unbelief because Paul knew that there was more to this life than just this life. There was eternity. And Paul desired his fellow countrymen, the, the, the people of Israel. He desired that they would embrace Christ so that they might be with God forever. The fact that they had rejected Christ caused him great sorrow because of the eternal faith that would await them after death. It bothered him so much, great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Listen to what he says in verse 3. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul was saying there is he says, I wish that I could go to hell so that all Israel could go to heaven. It's a powerful statement. Let me ask you this. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way for someone? Now, the statement that Paul makes at the end there, that might be the most intense kind of expression that you could imagine, but have you, has your heart ever ached? Have you ever stayed up late or got up early because someone you know and love was separated from God, had rejected Christ? You ever been in that spot? If you have, you can relate to Paul. And the reality is I think that many of us can. For some of you, you're a grandparent thinking of your grandchildren. You desire that they come into a relationship with Christ. For, for others, it's, it's a, a spouse. Your heart breaks for your, your life mate, your spouse, who has rejected Christ has not yet come to faith in Christ, and, and you stay up late or you get up early and you, your heart breaks, you, you shed tears over this issue. It's a, it's a parent for your kids the same way. It's a kid for your parents. It's someone in your extended family. It's someone in your extended network. They don't know Christ, and it bothers you at an emotional level. It bothers you because you know there's more to this life. If you have ever had that sensation or that feeling, then know this. It is consistent with what the Apostle Paul felt in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It's right for us as believers in Christ to have our emotions moved for those around us who don't know Christ because the stakes are so high. Now, let me just say this too. If you're here today and you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, but you're here today because somebody else invited you to come, know that there's a very good chance that the person that has invited you has spent some time early in the morning or late at night or in, and they're over their lunch break praying for you to come to know Christ. If you're here today and you just came here on your own and you don't know Christ, but somebody back home uh, has told you that you need to go to church or something like that, know that they're on their knees and they're praying. And why are we doing that? We're doing that not because we want to micromanage your life. We're doing that because we love you and we know that the eternity is at stake. Paul's heart broke. Believers' hearts break for unbelieving friends. 
because we long for them to be connected to God as we are connected with God, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of Christ and his work and what he's done for us. You see, there's a broken heart that Paul has for his unbelieving friends. Now, who were his unbelieving friends? Well, his unbelieving friends that he's referring to were his kinsmen, his countrymen, his fellow Israelites. And he describes them in verses 4 and 5. And he describes them in this, this, this grand way as a group of people who had been the recipients of God's great blessing. The Israelites were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons that formed 12 tribes that God curated into a nation and gave a land and gave promises to. And this group of people that lived out through the Old Testament era were the recipients of God's promises and God's covenants. They were a people that were favored and blessed and in relationship with God. Paul describes them this way. He says, they're Israelites. To them belongs adoption. They were sons and daughters of God. That's how God referred to them. To them belongs the glory. The glory of God led them out of Egypt. It was a a fire at night. It was a cloud by day. It eventually would rest over the Ark of the Covenant. The glory of God dwelt in this country among these people in a very tangible way. They were recipients of the glory of God. They were recipients of the covenants. God came to Abraham, not to everybody. God came to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to give you blessing, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Then God comes to David, and he says to David, David, I'm going to make a descendant of yours sit on the throne forever in a kingdom that will know no end. And then he comes through Jeremiah to the people, and he says, there one day will be a new covenant that I'm going to make that will cleanse your hearts and place my spirit within you. They were the people that had received the covenants of God. They were recipients of great blessing. They were people who had been given the law. It wasn't just anyone that went up on the mountain and got the law of God. It was Moses that went up on the mountain, a representative of the nation of Israel. And God gave him the tablets and he came down and communicated them to the people. They're recorded for us in our Old Testament. They were expounded upon by the prophets and include many promises and the right way of worship. God had blessed Israel with so much. He had blessed them with, verse 5, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the people with the lineage. They were the people who were from their race would come the Messiah. Jesus himself was a Jew. As a matter of fact, all of the early leaders in the church, they were Jews, the disciples, and Paul. See, the Jewish people were a people of tremendous blessing. They were a people that God had initiated with in a profound way. But here's the thing. Even in spite of all of that blessing, the majority of Jews in the first century rejected the Messiah. And so Paul's heart was broken because even those who were in such an environment to understand the gospel like no one else, they had rejected it. And it broke his heart. Friends, if somebody could live in the context of the nation of Israel and all of those blessings that we just saw and still reject Christ as the Messiah, don't you think it's possible that people could live today inside of an environment that we create inside of the church and still reject the gospel? 
Absolutely they can. And you know what? This bothers us as parents, doesn't it? It bothers us. And I, we, Kimberly and I, we have, a, we have a nine-year-old son. I would have loved a guarantee from God about his salvation based on what I did. If I just involved him in an environment that was godly, then he would be godly. If I just brought him to church on Sunday, and if it wasn't, church wasn't enough, certainly if I brought him to church on Sunday and Awana on Wednesday, then I would get some kind of a certificate of security that he would be in the kingdom of God, that he would be a child of God, but it doesn't work that way. People can be in environments of tremendous spiritual blessing and still reject Christ. They can be in an environment that follows God and still reject God. It's kind of a crude analogy, but it, but it helps make sense of it a little bit uh, if, if you think of it this way. Being in a garage does not make you a car. Being in the nation of Israel did not mean that you would be a follower of Messiah. Being in a church doesn't mean that you're a Christian. And because of that reality, friends, our heart breaks for unbelieving friends. Now, Paul makes a transition. And after making this assertion about the unbelieving friends that his heart breaks for, after, after making that, that turn, he begins to answer the question of how secure our salvation is based on the nation of Israel. Because if the majority of Israel had rejected Christ, and Christ had then moved on to, or God had then moved on to Gentiles, this, was the, this is the, the, the possible thing floating through our heads, then is it possible that God will one day be done with Gentiles and move on to someone else? How secure can our salvation be if it depends upon us? Well, that's what Paul begins to answer in verses 6 and following as he talks about how our salvation is secure, how our salvation is secure. Now, he begins this by making this statement about the Jews and about God's faithfulness towards the promises that he made to them. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, that word failed is a great little, little phrase in the original language. It can mean a ship that is floated off course. What Paul is saying here is he says, even though a number of the Jewish people have rejected Messiah, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful to the promises that he made. God was still faithful. That was the point that, that Paul was making here, and he's going to make throughout this entire section, that God is faithful to make good on his promises to Israel, and by that we can be certain that he will make good on his promises he's made to us. Now, the way that he does that is he's going to argue that Israel as a nation was, was never just a, a biological concept. It was never just something that these blessings were passed down purely through genetics, but it was always on the basis of a promise that God had given. And there was a remnant within Israel that was redeemed throughout history. And God has made a promise to that remnant even on into the future. But just because a segment of those who are of genetic background Jewish have rejected Christ, it doesn't mean that God's promises have failed. Now, he makes that case beginning in the second half of verse 6. He walks through Israel's history, and this is what he says. He says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. Now, he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people. He goes all the way back to Abraham. And he uses Abraham as an example to say that it wasn't just every child of Abraham that was going to be the recipient of the covenants and the promises, but it was going to be a select son of Abraham and his descendants through which they would be blessed. Now, we know that Father Abraham had many sons, right? We know this. And when we sing that song, we sing it thinking of his spiritual children. And that's true. The book of Romans lets us know that. But also, Father Abraham really did have many sons. He got a light start, but he ended up with a bunch of kids. Because when you think about the children that Abraham had, who was one of the children that Abraham had? The one that was the promised child? Isaac, right? Now, what was the name of another one of his sons? Ishmael, that he had through Hagar. And then, did he have any other sons? Yeah, he did. He had six other sons. I'm not going to ask you for their names. We don't know their names, but they're listed for us in Genesis chapter 25. See, Abraham had many sons, but it wasn't through all eight of his sons that the promise came. God chose one son, Isaac, through which the promise would be delivered, through which the covenants would be given. It was never on the basis of biology. It was always on the basis of choice and promise. And it was through Isaac that the descendants would be blessed. That's the point. So if there are some biological descendants who have rejected that doesn't invalidate the fact that God has a remnant. He has a promise to an individual, to a group of individuals, a group of people. So we see that through the case of Abraham. But what's interesting is when we think about Abraham and the birth of, of Isaac, sometimes we rationalize that one in our heads, don't we? Sometimes we think about Abraham and Isaac and we think, well, yeah, because he had the only child he had through Sarah was Isaac. Therefore, that's why he chose Isaac. The kid through Hagar or through his other wife, those, those, those children don't, don't count because they were with different women. But what's interesting is the next example he gives, also from Israel's history, talks about children that were born to the exact same parents. They were carried in the exact same womb. He's talking about Rebekah and Isaac and their children, Jacob and Esau. Verse 10 tells us the story and following. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's some, some big stuff there, right? Because now we're talking about children that were carried in the same womb, children with the exact same mother, the exact same father. And yet God chose one and not the other. And why did God choose one and not the other? And why were they carried as twins? I think it was to illustrate this point dramatically, that it's God who chooses, that his purpose of election would stand. We see that salvation is not about us. Salvation is about God's choice and his initiation with us. God has 
chosen Jacob. He chose to bless him. And what's interesting is he chose Jacob when they were still in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad. You know, sometimes we're tempted to think, well, God chose Jacob because Jacob was better. And there's two reasons why that's not right. The first reason is because Romans 9 lets us know clearly the choice was made while they were in the womb. But the second reason is, have you, have you read anything about Jacob's life? Jacob's life story would argue for us that Jacob was not better than Esau. God did not choose Jacob because he was better. As a matter of fact, God chose Jacob to demonstrate that salvation was by his choice, to demonstrate that, that election and blessing was by his choice. He chose it while they were in the, the mother's womb. And not only that, but he makes this selection, and then who is born first? Esau is born first. And who would normally have gotten the role of, of blessing? It would have been the firstborn, and yet it is not the firstborn who gets the blessing. It's not the firstborn that gets the birthright. It's Jacob who ends up with all of those things. Why? Because it was God who chose him. Jacob and Esau are a story that is given to us, a true event that happened in history to demonstrate the fact that salvation is on the basis of God's choice and not ours. Now, to be clear, we respond to God's choice in faith, but it's God's choice that leads to our salvation, not us figuring it out. It's interesting, he ends this section with this peculiar phrasing in verse 13 when he says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, that's a pretty explosive verse, right? If, if you hadn't had your head hurting before you got to verse 13, certainly it begins hurting in verse 13. But here's what you got to know about verse 13. Verse 13 is a quotation from the book of Malachi chapter 1 in verse 2. And this, this quotation from the book of Malachi was talking not just about Jacob and Esau, it was talking about the descendants of them, Israel and the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And it was saying that God loved one and hated the other. He had a priority for one over the other. And in order for us to, to really understand fully what this means, we need to do a little bit of study on the word hate. Because when we hear the word hate, we primarily think of emotion and anger. But when the Bible, the New Testament specifically, uses the word hate, there's a little more nuance to the term. It's a word that is used of priority. And we see this over and over again through the words of Christ. See, in, in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, Jesus talks about money and he says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either love one and hate the other. So no one can serve two masters, money and God. The idea is that we need to have a priority of God over money. He's not saying that we should never have money. He's saying that God should be our priority. So, so much so that God could be associated with love and money, hate in that situation. Same thing could be said of family. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 and verse 26, he says, no one can follow after me unless he hates his mother and father. Now, did Jesus mean that we should really angrily shake our fists at our mothers and fathers and call it obedience? Absolutely not, right? As a matter of fact, we're given commands to honor our father and mothers. The idea that what Jesus is saying there is that we should have such a priority on God 
that it would be as if we love God and hate our family. It's, a, it's an issue of priority. Same thing could be said of our own lives. John 12, 25, Jesus is talking about life and he says, he who hates his life will find it in Christ. In other words, we, we cannot hang on to this life. We must give it up. And as we give up our priorities in this life, as we bow down our knee to the agenda that Christ has for us, we give up our lives, but in doing so, we find something better. We find the life that he has for us. See, when we talk about the word hate, we're talking about a situation of priority. And what Paul is pointing out here is that God has a priority relationship with his chosen people to lead them to an eternity with him. Salvation is secure because it is based upon God's work and not our own. That's the point. See, this picture of choosing Jacob over Esau, honestly, is the perfect expression of the grace of God. When we talk about grace, what does grace mean? Grace means a gift, something unmerited that was given to us. And what we see here is that salvation is truly gracious. It is given to us without any merit before we have done anything good or bad. Salvation is God's choice. It's his election. He has initiated with us and he's offered us eternity through Christ. Now, when I say that, there's part of you that is rebelling. As an American, this bothers us. Because in America, what do we believe? Believe in the American dream. What is the American dream? I can be whoever I want to be. I can pick myself up from my bootstraps and, and go do whatever I want to do. It bothers us as an American because it sounds like salvation is fixed. Some have it, others won't. That bothers us. For, for others in this room, it bothers us merely because we're humans. And as humans, we, we are fallen and we have a, a, a selfish tendency and we want salvation to be about us. We want to tell our testimony and have it be all about us and how we figured it out and how great we are because we found out the truth of the gospel. And we want the other people to come to faith in Christ because of us. We want it to be our work, our effort, our presentation. See, that we struggle with that because we're people. But what God makes clear here is that salvation is about his decision. It's about his initiation. It's about his grace. And because of that, our salvation is absolutely secure. Now, make no mistake, we are called to embrace Christ in faith. And that happens in real time. And it was a real moment. But our faith response to Christ is only made possible because God initiated with us. And so how do we apply this idea? Well, for, for some who are in the room who we have are in, in a relationship with Christ, we have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins at some point in the past. Here's what I want you to, to, to remember. You're in a relationship with Christ, not because of you, but because of him. And what he initiated and started will not end. It's absolutely secure. You're not in a relationship with Christ by accident. We don't have to, to think that God somehow 
didn't plan for us, but he will tolerate us. We're in a relationship with God if we're a believer in Christ because he initiated with us, he chose us, he invited us in. It was his grace that saved us. But how about if you're here today and you don't know Christ? But as we've been talking about this, God is doing something in your heart. Know this, it's not because of the music and it's not because of the preaching. It's because God is doing something in your heart and life to draw you into a relationship with himself. It is not natural for us to believe in the gospel. It's not natural for us to trust someone else for our eternity. And yet, when we come to a spot that we realize that that is our option, what what is happening is God is revealing to us. He's opening our eyes that we are a part of his redeemed. And we can express our faith and our trust in him. If you're here today and God is moving in your heart towards salvation, know that that is God working in your heart and you can trust him today. For others of us though, we might hear these verses and wonder, well, what does this mean for evangelism? What does it mean for evangelism? What does it mean for world missions? I mean, if there is salvation is dependent upon God's initiation and not ours, then why should we ever tell anybody? And if just on a, on a micro level, if, if salvation is about what God is doing and not us, then you know, why would I ever go through the discomfort of having a conversation with my neighbor or with my brother or with my sister or with my parents or with my children? I'll just let it go. I'll leave it up to him. But here's the thing. God's chosen way to get the gospel to people is through us. Other salvation is not dependent upon us. God can use other ways. But God delights in using us to take his message to those who have not heard. And guess what? Though there, there is a list, we don't know who's on it. Therefore, we have the privilege of introducing all we meet, Christ. And then lastly, when I think about applying this, I know that there are some, as you hear this, um, that, that you're, you're angry. And you're angry not in your mind, you're angry in your heart. And you're angry in your heart because at, at some level, there is, there's somebody who is very dear to you who has lived their life and died without professing faith in Christ. And when we talk about election, when we talk about God's choice, you're angry because you feel like, why did God not choose blank? How can God be fair? How can he be just? And all these questions come up in your head. And if that's the case and those questions come up in your head, there's two things I want to say to you. Um, The first one is this. Um, I have great compassion for that conversation. And I'm not gonna give you an answer that's gonna make you feel good. But we can trust a sovereign God together in that. And the second thing is come back next week. Because the same questions that you have are the same questions that Paul addressed in the rest of Romans chapter nine. And we're gonna look some more of those next week. 